Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shore I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters close in, in all over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, was sacrificed to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and he vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, commencing reading from verse 1. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the cause of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace uh, and your incredible mercy towards us who are incredibly undeserving. Uh, we who are rebels, who have turned away from you, uh, who have chosen in so much of our lives to live our own way, neglecting that you are our creator, our God. And for us who call on Jesus in faith and call him our Lord and Savior, that we do not uh, live in obedience to him as we ought to. We do not appreciate the salvation that he has won for us. And yet you love us and you save us and you guide us through your word 
and you call us back to yourself. And so, Father, we pray that as your word speaks to us and calls us to yourself today, that we would listen and we would respond and that we would trust in the Lord Jesus and seek to live for him over again. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Now, we began our series uh, last week in Jonah, uh, and it's a very familiar story, like I said. Uh, and and with people, people like Jonah and, and these kind of uh, characters of the Bible, it's a very easy approach to, to come to uh, these characters and take a kind of a, a villain uh, or a, a hero kind of approach, right? a hero or villain approach to all these characters uh, in the Bible. Um, you know, the, the, it, it's a bit like uh, coming to a movie uh, where you're tricky, quickly trying to figure out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, and you're there applauding, cheering on the goodie, and you're there kind of condemning uh, the, the baddie, uh, shaking your heads and shunning those bad people. And of course, there are some movies which will kind of mess with your head, right? where they start off bad and become good, or they're good and become bad, and it messes with your head. But basically, we're, we're like an audience to the Bible, trying to see who are the heroes and who are the villains, uh, trying to emulate the heroes and to avoid being like the villain. It's as if the main task for Christians is to do better than the screw-ups and the failures in the Bible. But the Bible isn't like a movie that we watch as neutral observers. The Bible is much more like a mirror, showing us who we really are and who we really aren't. It's more like a mirror showing us who we really are and who we really aren't. So many failures in the Bible are those who are people of God who are even leaders of God's people. So you go right to the beginning, Adam and Eve, first of God's created children who failed spectacularly at the first temptation. And then you have Abraham, Father Abraham, given God's great promises, yet failing to believe God on so many occasions. And then we have the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who are constantly faithless and stubbornly rebellious. And they're not heroes or villains, they're like a mirror. The failures of God's people throughout the Bible serves as a reflection of our own condition, of our own failings. We are meant to see that we are not neutrals looking to find a moral lesson in these stories. We are meant to see that we are sinners needing God's saving mercy first and foremost before we ever have hope of overcoming our sin and living God's way. We are not neutrals Right? looking to find a moral lesson, we are sinners seeing a reflection of ourselves in these characters. Really important. Now, Jonah is one of the big screw-ups of the Bible. Uh, we saw this last week in the opening chapter. Uh, he's an Israelite, so he's one of God's chosen people. Remember that. Uh, even more than that, he's a prophet of this God, right? Yahweh. And when you see the Bible, the capital letters L-O-R-D, as in all caps or small caps, it's different to just the normal word for Lord, which means master. It's very important when you read it that it's, you see it as the personal name of the God of Israel, YHWH, which we usually say Yahweh, right? It's, it's, it's the God of Israel that, that Jonah is a prophet of. Uh, he is one of the chosen people of Yahweh God. And this Yahweh God, as we saw last week, isn't just any God. He's, he's the God of, of the heavens, the creator of the heaven, the earth, the seas, and all that is in it. And we saw last week that the Lord God has sent Jonah to warn the very, very wicked nation of, Ninevite, uh, of Assyria, the Ninevites, uh, the, this, the, the capital city, uh, of impending judgment. But Jonah refused. He was repelled by the thought of going to, to the nation's probably vilest men 
and, and, even, and he repelled by the thought that God may show mercy to these people if they were to turn at, God, at, at this message of judgment. So Jonah, who claims to know and fear the Lord God, rejects God's call and runs in the opposite direction. And then we saw last week that the sailors, these pagan sailors who do not know and do not worship the Lord God, on the other hand, they, 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 they come to, to, to hear about the Lord God and, and they, they respond with their expressions of faith. Uh, we left the story last week on a bit of a cliffhanger, didn't we? With Jonah being thrown overboard into the raging sea and surely he's dead meat, right? It's, it's, it, it's, you're meant to get the sense that he's, he's, he's gone up. Unless he's been tossed overboard. But of course, we know the story really well, and we know that he's not dead meat, uh, because in uh, the verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Right? Clearly, uh, this is a saving act. Right? From certain death in the raging sea, uh, drowned, he's kind of rescued, kept alive in the belly of this fish. But alive though he may be, he is still almost as good as dead. Right? He's in a, in a way a, a Rather than being in a watery tomb before, he's now in a belly tomb, right, of a, of a fish, uh, deep in the seas. Three days and three nights, we're told, he was there. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that Jesus himself picks up the story of Jonah to describe his time in the grave, three days and three nights, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. It's a picture of being in a tomb, being as good as dead, needing a further resurrection, so to speak. Clearly, Jonah needs a further and greater salvation than for being swallowed up in the fish. And as we already know, this is what Jonah gets at the end of this chapter, right? Uh, the Lord God speaks to the fish who vomits Jonah out onto the dry land. So the beginning of this passage, he swallowed the first kind of salvation. And then at the end of the chapter, he's thrown out back onto the land. He is kind of uh, resurrected, so to speak. Now, so what happens, right, between the swallowing and the vomiting, between the partial and the full salvation? What happens uh, inside this belly? Well, as we know, Jonah prayed, didn't he? He prayed. Now, there, there are two opinions about this prayer of Jonah. Let me read to you a couple of quotes that I read about it during the week. This is the first one. For me, the greatest prayer of faith ever prayed was the was the one Jonah prayed in the, to God in the belly of the fish, right? The greatest prayer of faith ever prayed. This is one opinion. The second opinion is this. Now, in my own prayer life, I find it helpful uh, to pray the prayers of Scripture. I sometimes pray the prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9 or the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6. I especially find it helpful to pray the Psalms. There's a Psalm for every emotion. If you do something like this, the one prayer in the Bible I encourage to never pray it's the prayer of Jonah in Jonah 2. It may be the worst prayer in the Bible. Now, you couldn't have a, a more stark uh, comparison or contrast between these two views, isn't it? The greatest prayer of faith ever prayed, never prayed. This is the worst prayer ever prayed. Now, which is it? Now, for most of us, I, I suspect we, we side more towards quote number one. We, we usually think this is a prayer of faith, don't we? We see it in the kids' books that we read to our children or that we grew up in in Sunday school, and we hear it in plenty of sermons and in Bible studies on this chapter. We may not go as far as to say it's the greatest prayer of faith ever prayed, but we certainly see this prayer positively and for good reason. Right? Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he's finally crying out to God and praying to God. And then we see at the end of it that God saves him. Obviously, he's done something right. 
And we, we, we apply this passage accordingly, right? When, we, when we've sinned, when we're in trouble, uh, when we're in need of God's help to be saved, we cry out to God and He saves. That's a very common uh, and, and, and you can understand understandable application of this passage. And, and if, especially if you know your Psalms, then even more so, this, this, this uh, prayer sounds really good because it, it looks just like a Psalm of Thanksgiving, right, throughout the Psalms. So in the Psalms of Thanksgiving, you often find a, a structure like this. You often see the Psalmist will, will give a summary, all right, of what he's been through. He'll cry out to God and God saves. Then he'll describe Right, the situation that he was in, uh, that he needed saving from, and at the end, after having received salvation, he makes his vow to, to worship, and then this kind of uh, declaration like, salvation belongs to the Lord. If you know your Bibles, you know that comes from Psalm 3. And if you know your Bibles, it's there in Revelation 7, at the end of the Bible, where all of God's people are gathered around Jesus, and they are saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a wonderful ending to a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, if you want to look at this on yourself during the week, Psalm 3, Psalm 18, and Psalm 30 are great ones to compare Jonah's Psalm of Thanksgiving. Sorry, I saw someone take a photo there. Take your photo, if you got it. Okay. Um, I think the PowerPoint slides are put on the website. No, they're not. Okay, we can make that available in the future. Now, where are we? Jonah's theology in this psalm is impeccable, isn't it? He's gotten God completely right. There's no line there which you'll go, hmm, something dodgy. Everything looks great. And at this point in time, you'd have to say that Jonah has finally come good. To pray a prayer like this, surely he's turned around. However, when you look a little bit more closely and carefully, you will see that not all is well. There is something fishy going on. Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, in this psalm, there's something fishy going on here, okay? Now, we mustn't forget what has happened uh, in the previous chapter. Uh, why, what caused him to be in the belly of the fish praying in the first place? Remember, the one who claimed to fear the Lord God of heaven and earth has flat out rejected the call of God to go to Nineveh. In fact, he's turned the opposite direction and he's run, literally, away far from God, going further down, 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 as we heard last week. It's a picture of complete rejection and utter uh, rebellion against God. Right? There's no other way to put it, really, in chapter 1. There's nothing redeeming in chapter 1. And on the run, in the boat, we see Jonah. Uh, God sends a huge storm to try to turn him around. Right? He knows it's from God, but he could not care less as he slept in the bottom of the boat. He couldn't care less that the people on the boat, the sailors, were dying. And, and even when, when they were asking him to pray to God in the hope that, that this God that is causing this trouble might save him, he couldn't be bothered. He says, I'd rather be thrown overboard and die than to call out to God. Right? Chapter 1, there is, there is no sense of any remorse, of any repentance. Now, when we get to chapter 2 in this prayer, it, it's, it's still not there. When you read it, you're, you're, you're hoping, you're, you're thinking, maybe you should hear some kind of apology some kind of asking for forgiveness, some kind of confession of sin, but it's not there at all. Not there at all. Now, in the Psalms, the Psalms of Thanksgiving are usually prayed by faithful men of God or the Messiah of God, like King David, and they pray because, because they are being faithful to God, they are suffering and being chased by God's enemies. And when they're saved, then they pray the prayer of Thanksgiving. But in the Psalms, when people have known their sin against God, like, like David did when he sinned against God with, with his adultery and murder, they come with prayers of, of confession, of, of remorse, of repentance. 
You expect for Jonah to be praying one of those kind of prayers, not a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, I remember early in my marriage to Faith, uh, we would fight and argue, and we'd have really long ones. Like, we'd start in maybe midnight, uh, maybe like just before midnight, and we'd go to 3, 4 in the morning, right? We, were, uh, we didn't know each other very well when we got married, so we fought quite a bit when we started out. And uh, sometimes, okay, a lot in the early stages of marriage, I found it really hard right, to say sorry. And we couldn't resolve it, um, as marriage counselors would say, before the sun goes down, right? Because the sun was gone way long ago. And so we go to sleep, and then we wake up the next morning, and I still couldn't say sorry, right? So what do you do? You still have to live together, don't you? So, well, you, you, you do small talk, like, um, you want some tea? <laughs> okay? Or maybe you might say something uh, a little bit more substantial. Uh, you might say, well, you're looking fresh this morning. <laughs> All right, you know that awkward? Or, or maybe you might even try, or I might even try to say something really, really nice, like, you know, you're the most godly woman I know, and you're the best mother the children could ever have, right? I might say something really profoundly nice like that. But I haven't actually owned up to any of my wrongdoings yet. I haven't actually asked for forgiveness of sins. What do you think a relationship's like? It doesn't matter what I say from that point on. If I haven't confessed my sins and asked for forgiveness, you're right to think and ask, well, what's going on, right? For Jonah, where is the regret? Where is the remorse? Where is the repentance? But that's not all. Look closely at what Jonah does say in this prayer. Now, what reason does he give for why he is in the predicament that he is in? Have a look, right? Verse 3. You, pointing to God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows, now these are the waves, passed over me. Now, who's the perpetrator here? God is. God is the one who has done this to me. Who's the victim here? I am, Jonah says. You, God, have done this to me. Verse 4, I said, I am driven away from your sight. Say again, who drove who from whose sight? Did not Jonah drive God away from his sight by running in the other direction? God wasn't casting him out. He was running away. So this is like me saying to faith after I've hurt and sinned against her and not apologized, you know, Faith, you got angry. You're the one holding on to all this hurt. In fact, you're the one who made me do this. Sound familiar? Some people smiling here, some, some wives. Yes, we do this kind of thing, don't we? We, we? we shift the blame. There's no recognition of sin, no repentance. You get the sense of shifting the blame to God. It is not looking good, is it? And yet we hear Jonah speak with such confidence of being saved. Verse 2. I call out, God answered me. I cried out, God heard. Verse 4, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall come again to look upon your holy temple. Right, basically saying, I shall come again into your holy presence. Verse 5 and 6, I am as good as dead and buried. Right, all those descriptions there. Yet you will raise me up to life. Verse 7, I pray and it reaches you in your holy temple. Can you hear just how confident Jonah is. But it's not confidence, is it? It's presumption. A rebellious, unrepentant man who hasn't even said sorry expects God to hear and answer his prayers, expects to waltz back into the presence of the holy Lord God Almighty, having turned his back and run away in the opposite direction, who expects 
salvation simply to come. Who does Jonah think that he is? Where did he get the impression that this is what he deserves? Well, I think we find out as he finishes his prayer. Have a look at verse 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's real Jonah doing here? Well, he's contrasting himself with the pagans, isn't it, who worship idols. Those idol worshippers, well, they don't deserve to be saved. They have no hope of being saved. But I, I know I'll be saved. And what does he base his certainty on? He bases it on his status as being an Israelite, as being one of God's people, chosen, given the law. He bases it on fulfilling his sacrifices, right, his religious obligations, and, and fulfilling his vows, which he will pay, he says. Now, in one sense, Jonah is 100% theologically correct. Pagan idol worshippers don't have hope of salvation, God's people, God's chosen people do. That is a theologically correct statement, but you only have to think back to chapter 1 to see that the pagan idol worshippers on the boat, the sailors, they're the ones who hear about Lord God and respond. And having been saved, then they offer up their worship, their sacrifices, and then they make their vows to God. But Jonah in chapter 1, who claimed to fear the Lord God, did no such thing. Such a deep irony, isn't it? The so-called pagans who have no hope are the ones who respond to God. But the one who supposedly is God's people does not. Yet here, Jonah is smug in presuming salvation based on his status. And you get the sense that his sacrifices and vows aren't like the sailors made in response to salvation. You kind of get the sense that the order is kind of wrong. He says, I will sacrifice, I will pay my vows, and then salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation then becomes mine. Salvation belongs to the Lord is a wonderful, wonderful statement. It could even be the summary of the entire message of the Bible. But here for Jonah, it's almost as if it was, salvation belongs to the Lord and don't I deserve it? Don't I deserve it? Now in spite of all this, in spite of all this, the Lord God saves Jonah. Doesn't it? Like the, the, the fish, he vomits out this rather vile Jonah out into the dry land. The fish couldn't stomach this guy, right? It made him sick in the guts. Sorry, I just had to put that one in. But not really, that's not true, is it? It wasn't the fish that got sick of Jonah. It was the Lord who spoke to the fish, and it's the Lord who saves Jonah. It's not the fish at all. You see, flawed as Jonah is, he did pray. He did call and cry out to God. Jonah ran from the Lord, but he never denied him. He, he still confessed that the Lord God was the God of heaven, in a way, his God. And God is merciful to save those who do call out to him in faith, no matter how flawed this faith is. God always responds to faith, no matter how flawed it is. And Jonah's is as flawed as most. You see, Jonah isn't the villain we look down on and try to be better than. Jonah is a mirror we look at to remind ourselves of our flawed faith and the saving mercy of God. We're not supposed to see that we're better than Jonah. We're supposed to see that we're just like him. 
That, that we too uh, reject God's call on our lives. We, we, do, we too run away from God all the time in our own way. We too deny that uh, even though we, we claim to have Jesus as our Lord, which means that we, we ought to be wholly devoted to him in our lives, we, we, we often fail to meet that. Or even, maybe even more than often. And yet when we call out to God, God is merciful in saving us. There are times too when we are slow to regret sin, to have remorse and to respond with true heartfelt repentance. And perhaps there are even some of us right now who, who haven't regretted, who haven't shown any remorse, and haven't even moved towards repentance in some of the sins in our lives right now. And yet with, faith, uh, with weak and faltering and flawed faith, we call out to our Savior Jesus, and amazingly like Jonah, we receive the mercy of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the size of your faith. It is who you call out to. And in Jesus, we find saving mercy. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you too can receive God's saving mercy for your sins, for your rejection of God. You don't need a faith that is perfect. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know that Jesus is the Savior and you call out to Him. Now, for those of us who do trust in Jesus and, and know God's saving mercy, perhaps our problem is like Jonas. We have come to take it for granted that God is a saving God. We have come to presume on salvation. Maybe superiority and self-righteousness has started to creep in into our thinking and into our, our life. Now, the question is, how would you know that you've, you've become a bit like Jonah? How do you see the reflection of Jonah in your own life? Well, perhaps like Jonah, you're reluctant or slow to confess your sins. Perhaps like Jonah, you're reluctant or slow to confess your sins. Now, very few things grieve me and worry me more than people that I pray with who when I ask, you know, what struggles are you going in your, have in your life at the moment? What sins do you want to work on and confess? And then, you know, they say, well, nothing really at the moment. I can't really think of anything that I'm struggling with. Have you ever prayed with people like that? Or maybe you're the guy who says that. Now, maybe you just want to avoid talking to me, all right? So that's fine. Maybe you do pray, but then you just told a lie, so you should confess about that. Uh, but, you know, people sometimes genuinely really believe that they've got nothing to work on. They're going okay. Going about your life, calling yourself a Christian, even living Christianly most of the time, yet without confessing sin, without regretting and showing remorse and, and, and seeking repentance in some aspect of your life, unless you're already like Jesus in 100%, Shouldn't there be some kind of remorse and regret and repentance at, at play? It's like me living with faith, going about everyday life and conversation without ever saying sorry and asking for forgiveness. Right? It, it's, it's as if I was a perfect husband and a perfect father. You'd imagine that in a real relationship with a real person at home, there are, there, are, there are things to confess, things to feel sorry about. The absence of confession and repentance is a huge alarm bell that God's saving mercy is being taken for granted. Now, how else would you know? Well, like Jonah, you take your status and blessings as God's child as a given. Or you take your status and blessing as God's child as a given. There's no great sense of awe that a sinner like you can be a child of God having direct access to the Father. That there's no more wonder and amazement at the sheer grace and mercy of God when you sin, 
You don't so much ask for forgiveness with holy fear and, and humble pleas. It, it's more a matter of fact. You go through the motions of confessing sin and claiming salvation. Maybe it's a cursory thanks, a rote reciting of certain salvation. Maybe it's like, you know, dear God, uh, sorry I sin. I know you will forgive me. You sent Jesus, so my sins are forgiven. Thank you, amen. All right, maybe that's kind of a mantra you say in the morning when you wake up or in the night before you go to bed, right? Throw off your one-minute prayer. And look, 100% theologically correct. Correct? Completely great words. But where is the, the heart? Is there a heart missing in a prayer like this? Is there sorrow for your sin? Is there more that you could reveal yourself to God as you speak to Him in confession and repentance that shows that you're engaging with how you've been so vile towards your Holy Father? Is there a way of expressing that you truly are remorseful and repentant? Can there not be a fuller expression of our repentance, a greater note of appreciation and thanks and praise? Now, I'm almost, I can almost guarantee that if there is no brokenness about sin, there is no joy in salvation. Everything is just a theologically correct flatness right, that goes through your mind. Or maybe you just go through the motions because salvation is yours in Christ anyway. Right? It's kind of like, well, I sinned. You kind of go through the motions. You know you're forgiven. You just carry on. Presumption has seeped in. No sorrow, no awe in salvation left. Maybe that's you. Now, how else would you know? The third thing, like Jonah, you feel like you're deserving of your status as God's child. You feel like you're deserving of your status as God's child. You feel secure in salvation because of how well you're going in your faith. You know, you're really good with the Bible. You've even been going to training, right, to really learn about the point of a passage and the, and the purpose of the passage and the tone of the passage and how to apply the main point properly, right? You're able to criticize, you know, reading out of context. You know, you're getting really good at theology and you love having debates where you always win. Right? when you discuss with people theological issues. And you're even moral. You're a good person. You're, a God, you're, you're exhibiting godliness. You do lots of service in your home, in the community, in church. And you even evangelize. And that's like the, the gold standard, isn't it, for all of us. You do all those things, and perhaps knowingly or subconsciously, you start to think, oh, you know, you are deserving of God's mercy. Right, maybe you, you don't think that you, you're fully deserving, like, you know, yeah, God, you, you, you need me, you deserve me. Maybe it's more like you've gone from being poor in spirit, seeing your need at every moment, to going, oh, I'm, I'm okay with you now, God, because of my self-righteousness. No more do I see myself as totally deserve, uh, undeserving and needing your grace and mercy. I, I now see that I'm, I'm less needing to feel that way because I'm more righteous by my own achievements. We might never say this about ourselves, but we need to examine whether that's an attitude that we have. We stop being poor in spirit and, and humble before God. And maybe, on the flip side, we've also started to see that maybe other people might not be as deserving as we are. Now, we might not fully go out and say that, I'm more deserving of salvation than that person, but it's seen subtly, isn't it, in the way that we might have judgmentalism. We might have a critical spirit. We might just subtly look down on people or avoid certain people because we've got this new superior self-righteous attitude inside of ourselves. Jonah serves as a mirror to us who are believers. 
His prayer in this chapter reveals a thoroughly flawed faith, lacking in repentance, full of presumption and self-righteousness. Yet through Jonah, we see the amazing and incredible saving mercy of God. We see in Jonah a reflection of our own faith. And we see through Jonah a God who has been and is incredibly merciful in saving us, despite our flawed faith. And so we give great thanks, don't we? We ought to give great thanks to our Heavenly Father, who has been so merciful in saving us through His Son. And we walk away from the mirror, as we're told in James, not forgetting what we've seen. The worst thing we can do now is to become neutral again, observers of the Bible, walking away, just criticizing Jonah. No, we walk away remembering how Jonah has made us look. And maybe we need to do the work of repenting and confessing our sins and feeling the weight of that sin. Maybe we do need to have a greater awe and appreciation of the mercy of God's salvation in our lives. Let me pray that that would happen for us. Heavenly Father, indeed, incredible and amazing is your saving mercy. Oftentimes we forget just how profound it is to say that because we forget just how sinful and rebellious and undeserving we truly are. Perhaps like Jonah, we, we are constantly uh, lacking in remorse and repentance for our sins. That we have a small view of your holiness and a big view of our godliness. Perhaps we've gone into presuming that you're a God who saves us anyway, that, that Jesus died. And, and so it's just a, 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 a mantra, a rote thing, where we confess and we receive forgiveness. Or perhaps we've even gone to the point where we've grown in our faith and we've, we've grown in our knowledge, we've grown in our service, and we've even started to think that maybe we are more deserving than we used to be. All these things, Father, we pray that you forgive us and you help us to see the error of our ways. Help us to see that your mercy is totally undeserving. And even as we do grow, even as we do uh, change, it doesn't change the fact that your mercy is totally undeserving. So please help us to truly appreciate what you've done for us in Jesus. And help us to see in Jonah a mirror that we walk away from wanting to change. Please help us to really appreciate mercy and live that out. This we pray in Jesus' most precious name.